It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 Three one three eight one four five six seven, or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And welcome into the Virtual Bible Study. We're glad you're part of it tonight. Uh, this is the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, June 26th, and we're live on your computer tonight. Uh, thank you again for joining us, and we'll thank you in advance for participating. You do so by dialing 877-381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments to questions at collegeview.com. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is to my left tonight, not across the table. We're in a new location tonight. Jacob, we are uh, just just have wrapped up our vacation Bible school session for tonight here at the College View Church. And uh, we've had uh, a number of people uh, visiting. And we've got a number of people joining us in the, in the room. We've set up our equipment in a big classroom so that we can have a live studio audience tonight. And several are coming in, and we hope they'll participate as well. We are having our vacation Bible school this week. We've got one more night, tomorrow night. And anybody in the Middle Tennessee area, if you're able to come and join us, uh, Joel Plunkett will be here tomorrow night to teach the adult class. We're studying in the book of Acts, and we're having a really good study. And by the way, Jacob, we've got a special guest here who participated tonight in the Vacation Bible School. Yeah, to my right tonight is Jim Walsh from Mount Pleasant. We hear from Jim every week uh, via email, but uh, we get to hear from him in person tonight. Hello, Jim. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I appreciate being here tonight. And we also have another guest who was on the program last week from Nashville. Tonight he's on the other side of a pile of wires and computers Phil Hunt is here. Hello, Phil. Hello, Jacob. Good I guess to see you. Phil's down here to uh, check out his product tonight, Dad, to make sure that his streaming service that he provides us every week is working correctly. Yeah, we've got on-site technical assistance tonight. Phil, is the, if you look at our website, you'll see that uh, our audio streaming services are from Webcast Fusion. Phil is the, the principal person involved in Webcast Fusion, and he he had been for a long time providing us great services to get this program out on the Internet, and we appreciate his help so much. Of course, he, Phil used to be a member of the church here at College View, and we're glad to have him visiting again with us tonight. All right. We want to hear from you at 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com on the subject tonight of... Jacob, earlier today, as I always do, I send out an email message to those on our update list we always remind you, if you're not getting those updates and you want to, send us an email message, questions at collegeview.com. Remember the unique spelling of collegeview, C-O-L-L-E-G-E-V-U-E. Questions at collegeview.com and put in the subject line, add me to your list. We get, we get several people each week uh, requesting that, and our numbers are growing on the update list. So if you're not on it yet, be sure to send me a message, and we'll put you right on our list. But earlier today, I sent out uh, a sort of a notice about what we would be discussing and what we thought since our whole week of study here at College U this week has been about the book of Acts, we're trying to study through the book of Acts, we thought that what we would do is talk about some doctrinal issues, some questions that are answered in the book of Acts. I think that's one of the great things about the book of Acts is that it, it answers so many questions that people in the religious world are divided about. If we would just study the book of Acts and learn the information that God supplies there, we'd have the answer to a lot of questions. So I ask uh, our participants tonight... 
list five important doctrinal issues that are addressed and answered in the book of Acts. That's, that's a pretty simple request, but uh, there's a lot of stuff out there that you could write. In fact, Jacob, I sat down earlier today and wrote down 25 things. Yeah, we won't cover all those tonight. <laughs> yeah, we probably we want to cover yours, though, too, so we hope you'll comment. I thought we might start with one that Jim Waltz talked about tonight, and one of our respondents uh, mentioned, let me see if I can get to this, uh, one, of our, one of our respondents mentioned this question about Acts chapter 15, and this was this is what Jim studied with us uh, tonight in the adult class. Um, what about Acts chapter 15, uh, what we learn about how to apply Bible authority from the way that the brethren dealt with the issue, the problem that existed in Acts chapter 15? I think that's a, a good question because, Jim, you talked about the fact there was real problems at that time. Well, yeah, there were problems. And, you know, if, if we read it in Acts chapter 15, it, it says in verse 2, I'm uh, reading from the King James Version, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, speaking of these individuals who came down, uh, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. So it, it was a serious question. But uh, it, it, looking at this situation, you know, does Acts 15 represent a decision-making church conference? We find out that over and over it talks about the apostles and elders being involved and uh, not a bunch of churches, but only those directly involved in the situation It, it indicates itself. the apostles and elders of that congregation in right. Acts 15. That, you know, a lot of times I've heard people say that Acts 15 is the justification for a church, uh, a hierarchy of church government, maybe a synod or a conference. You know, uh, our, our Baptist friends have the Southern Baptist Convention. And if you were to ask them, where's the authority for something like that in the Bible they would go to Acts 15. But as you pointed out, Jim, that that's not what happened there. No, it's not. In fact, when you read Acts 15, you find that as Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, the, and again, we're going to really quickly summarize what happens. Verse 1, it says that certain men came from Judea and taught the brethren, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. So then there is this discussion, and it cannot be resolved. So Paul and Barnabas and others from that congregation go to Jerusalem, and verse 2 says to the apostles and elders about the question. Now, we find in verse 3 that they go to these different churches, and they're brought in their way by the church. They pass through uh, these different cities that mentions uh, Phoenicia and Samaria, etc., and they're mentioning you know, about all the conversions that took place. They didn't invite anybody else. They didn't invite any other congregations. This was a problem that existed from individuals in Judea going to Antioch, and so they were going back down to Jerusalem to resolve the matter. Nobody else was involved. So it's not this uh, conference in inviting all people to come to determine how they're going to resolve it. And we find in Acts 15 that the way it's simply resolved is by an appeal to God's Word. Exactly right. You know, I think we can tie in another passage, too, that kind of gives us a little bit of insight. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul mentions going to Jerusalem for that meeting that took place there. He mentions in, in Galatians 2, verse 1, 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Paul said he went up by revelation. Paul Paul did not go up there for the purpose of, of getting an answer to a problem. He didn't go up there so that they could take a vote. He said he went up by revelation. He knew the answer to this issue before he went up there. He didn't go up there to find out. 
if they should be circumcising Gentiles. He knew that answer already. And so this is absolutely not a, a decision-making church conference by any stretch of the imagination. And I think that's important. By the way, if any of you all have... In, the, in, in our live studio audience, if you've got any comments that you'd like to add, raise your hand. We've got a mic here. Monty's got it in his hand there, and, and we can get you wirelessly hooked up. If you're not in our audience, the number is 877-381-4567, or you can email questions at collegeview.com. We do look forward to hearing from you on the other end of the Internet tonight. One other thing I want to point out before we move maybe to a different question in Acts is that in Acts 15, I think it's real interesting, and it has been pointed out, that you really see, and, and you talked some about this in your lesson tonight, Jim, how they established the authority on this question. Peter spoke in Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 7. Peter spoke and told about how uh, that God had guided him to the house of Cornelius and that the Holy Ghost fell upon Cornelius. And in other words, Peter says, I've got an example. I've got an example of a of a of an obvious Gentile convert. God wanted the Gentiles converted, and I have an example in the case of Cornelius. And then Barnabas and Paul got up in verse 12 and said, well, you know, we've been working miracles. God has given us the power to work miracles among the Gentiles. In other words, they were making an inference from that. If God is empowering us to work miracles among the Gentiles, he must want them converted. So Peter gives example. Paul and Barnabas give inference by way of authority. And then James gets up and, and says... Uh, in verse 15, to this agree the words of the prophets, and it is written. He goes on to quote some prophetic statements. So there were three things referenced there. The example of Cornelius' conversion, the implication that it must be the right thing to do since God was giving Paul and Barnabas the power of miracles, and then James says, well, you know, the Word of God actually says this. So sometimes we talk about Bible authority being established by direct command, approved example, necessary inference and that's exactly what these fellows did here when they were talking about this issue well even when you deal with uh when you deal with peter he was he was told to go and to meet with cornelius so there's a command to go and when we have the situation with uh, paul and barnabas in acts 13 the holy ghost separates them and said you're going so there was a command to go so we have all of that command we have example and we do have the inference and in recognizing that if they worked those miracles and jesus said that the miracles would be a testimony of his word, they were testifying to what needed to be further, done. Further evidence, though, that this is not a conference, Jim, as you pointed out in your sermon tonight, they didn't vote on it. Right. You have a conference. Uh, the only reason you have a conference is to get everyone's opinions on something and their think-sos, and you vote on it. We've seen religious people even voting in recent years about whether or not homosexuality is acceptable. You don't have to vote on it when you're looking to God's word. These people didn't vote on it. They just looked at what God had revealed, and then they made the application and so uh, very different from what we see in the religious world today. Right, and we, we did, again, talk in, in the lesson about verse 22 in Acts 15, how that uh, there's a resolution that's made, and we find that the church is only involved in hearing about the resolution, and the only part really that the church at that point had was in choosing the men who were going to go with uh, Paul and Barnabas to reveal uh, the God's word unto these people. All right, the number to call is 877-381-4567. The email address is questions at collegeview.com. Jacob, uh, that, that first question about Acts 15 came from our friend James here in Columbia, Tennessee. And I want to go to another question that he mentioned uh, as he responded to our, to our, to our uh, email where we were seeking feedback. Another question he asked was, um, what about the transmission of spiritual gifts and what we learn about that from the case of the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. 
Last night, no, take it back, Tuesday night, Joe Corley was here and he taught us from that text. But there is some important information in Acts 8 about how spiritual gifts were conveyed to people in the first century. To start out that discussion, I might comment upon the fact that I, I think it's clear that not all Christians, even in that first century time frame, were working miracles. I, I think that's a mistaken assumption that all who became Christians had the power to perform miraculous deeds. There's, there's no indication that that was so. In fact, what's indicated is just the opposite. In Acts chapter 2, verse 43, it says many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. They are specified as the ones doing miracles. In chapter 5, at verse 12, it says by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. So this, the, the indication is not that every Christian of the first century had these powers to perform supernatural deeds. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Verse 29, Paul says, are all apostles? And it's a rhetorical question. He answers an obvious no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. It's clear that they were, he says, do all have the gift of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret tongues? No. And so anybody who suggests that every Christian of the first century era could do miraculous deeds is wrong. There are some people in the religious world today who to, who believe that and, and actually insist that that continues to be the case. It was never the case that every Christian could work miracles. How were these gifts passed on? Phil, uh, you want to look at Acts chapter 8 and give us the explanation of that, Phil? Sure. I, I think we do learn some useful information from the book of Acts and in ch- uh, chapter 8 of that book. Uh, we have the case of Simon the sorcerer, and we have the... The issue where his heart was not right before God. And if you notice what the underlying issue was, it says in verse 17 that then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter goes on to say, may your silver perish with you and your heart's not right before God. And we uh, see Simon's repentance. Although Simon's heart was wrong here, we, he did have an accurate perception of how these gifts were passed along. It was through the laying on of the apostles' hands. And when you look at early church history, uh, I don't recall of any case in which someone that was not an apostle had the power to give, the, give gifts to uh, someone uh, that was not a disciple. Only, only the apostles had the ability to lay, those, lay hands on people and give those gifts. So once the apostles were gone... What happens to the gifts? Well, Jim, that lines up with what the Bible tells us about miracles and foretells the end of the miraculous age. Right. And, uh, you know, I think you're making reference there to uh, 1 Corinthians 13. But uh, I think, you know, the point that uh, that uh, was made earlier in uh, by Greg in Acts chapter 2 and talking about the fact that, you know, it tells us how many people were uh, converted on the day of Pentecost. You know, we have these 3,000 people here that are uh, in, in verse 41 says 3,000 souls. But then it tells us that uh, the wonders and signs were only done by the apostles. So uh, we know that even after over 3,000 people have been converted, that it's only the apostles that are the ones that have the power of, of the Holy uh, Spirit to work these miracles. And, and so I think, uh, you know, just like we were, we were talking earlier tonight about Acts chapter 15, when an appeal is made to Scripture and we have the evidence from Scripture, that takes care of it. Well, Jim, and to people who believe that miracles are happening today, 
to say that miracles no longer occur is blasphemous to them. And in their mind, they're saying, you're saying that God can't work miracles. You're saying that God uh, somehow is uh, not all powerful as we believe. How do you deal with that objection that when someone, when you say God's not working miracles today and someone immediately thinks that you're blaspheming God by saying that he couldn't work miracles, how do you answer that objection? Well, I think the simple answer to it is that God places boundaries around us, but in some respects God places boundaries around himself. He tells us that there are things that he cannot do. And just as an example of that, you know, Titus chapter 1, you may be familiar with this and may know exactly where I'm going with this. In verse 2, it says, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. So we know that God establishes some boundary. And one thing he tells us that he will never do is lie. Now, does that mean that God can't lie? Does that mean that I'm blaspheming God by saying it's impossible for him? No, it just means that it's God said It's impossible because he said it. It's impossible. impossible because he said it. it is. So in dealing with miracles, if God places boundaries on them and says this far and no further, then who am I to say, well, I think we can have them today. If he says that they, that they fulfill a specific purpose and that once that purpose is fulfilled, they're no longer needed, then I can't go beyond that boundary and say, well, I think we still ought to have them today. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'd like to hear from you during the break. 877-381-4567, questions at collegeu.com. If you're in the audience, get your questions together. We'll get them on the other side of the break. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Hi, I'm Wade Shelton. In 1 Peter 3.15, the scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we believe here at College View that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh. And I believe that we are dedicated to this cause. That's why we here at College View bring you the virtual Bible study each week. Our hope is that you will join us each week here on the Virtual Bible Study in hopes of strengthening your faith so that you will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Please join us here every Thursday night on the Virtual Bible Study. I know that it's worth an hour of your time. I'm Arthur Haynes from Kaleoka, Tennessee, and one of my greatest highlights of the week is to listen to the Virtual Bible Study. Use your internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. And welcome back to the virtual Bible study. We're live tonight, and we're ready to take your questions or comments over email, over the phone, or in person tonight. And along those lines, we have a comment from Arthur in the audience. We just heard from him. It's a highlight of his week to listen to the virtual Bible study, and tonight he's doing it in person. Arthur? Uh, Yes, you can see uh, where Philip was already down here in Samaria. And how he'd been preaching and how he'd performed all these miracles and he'd cast out these unclean spirits and, and all the things that he was doing, yet and still, you know, that he wasn't able or didn't lay his hands on these people that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because in verse 14, he said that the word of God came to them there at, uh, in Jerusalem and they had sent uh, Peter and John down there. And it says, when Peter and John were come, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, for it had not yet fallen on any of them, only that they had been baptized in the Lord Jesus. Then the apostles, Peter and John, laid their hands on them, and then they received the Holy Ghost. So that's telling me, without a doubt, that Philip couldn't do that. It took the apostles. That's the reason they came down there, you know, to do that very thing. And then when the apostles died, then there was no more of the laying of hands on anyone else to receive the Holy Spirit. 
In other words, we know that Philip was a man who could work miracles. It says so in, in Acts 8. We know he got that power back in chapter 6. He's named as one on whom the apostles laid their hands. So what we're seeing there is that this was a one-generation pass, if you could refer to it as that. In other words, the apostles could pass it to Philip, but Philip couldn't pass it on to anyone else. Now, as Phil properly pointed out, that would indicate that once the uh, original apostles were dead, then there wasn't anybody else who was going to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, miraculous gift of the Holy Ghost, by the laying on of the apostles' hands. Hang on, just now we got you. Arthur, start over again. Okay, you can look back in chapter six and verse six. You know how that those uh, uh, deacons supposedly some think how that they were chosen, and Philip was one of those. And he said in verse six, "In whom they set before the apostles, when when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them." So the apostles gave Philip that power in order to be able to perform those miracles there in Samaria. Okay. And uh, along while we're in Acts chapter 8, uh, uh, I believe on Tuesday night, uh, Joe Corley made this comment, and uh, it is important to clear up some controversy about what kind of baptism was pre- prevalent in the first century, whether it was Holy Spirit baptism or water baptism. In uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 16, as uh, the apostles are coming to lay hands on them, Jim, it says that uh, they didn't have the gift because for as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and so at this point, they were believers, they were saved, but they hadn't received the gift of the Holy Spirit yet, indicating that they had been baptized with water, not with the Holy Spirit. Right. They hadn't received the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, it talks about the fact in, in verse 12 that they were baptized. And then in verse 16, it talks about them being baptized, but not having uh, the Holy Spirit because verse seven, uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit, because then verse 17 says they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. So we know there's a distinction that's being made there. Let's, let's tie in something else then from the book of Acts. Let's go back to Acts 2.38. I think all of us are familiar with Acts 2.38. Peter said to the assembled crowd on the day of Pentecost, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Well, what is that gift of the Holy Ghost? It is obviously not the ability to perform miracles. Now, some people think that it is. That we should be able to perform miracles. If we have believed and been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, we should be able to work. It never was so. We have pointed out that not all Christians had such abilities in the first century. That it was unique to those who had been baptized by the Holy Spirit, that being the apostles on the day of Pentecost. We know Cornelius was baptized with the Holy Ghost in Acts 10. But that was a very limited occurrence. And those men could pass on the gift. The apostles could pass on the gift with the laying on of hands, but not everyone had that power. So, But the promise is that if we believe and are baptized, we'll have the remission of sins, the gift of the Holy Ghost. What is the gift of the Holy Ghost? I don't believe it's anything miraculous. That expression, the gift of the Holy Ghost, can mean two things. It can mean the Holy Ghost himself. It is The gift of the Holy Ghost is the Holy Ghost himself. Or it is a gift given by the Holy Ghost. The gift of the Holy Ghost is a gift given by the Holy Ghost. And I believe that's the right way to read that verse, meaning that salvation comes to those who believe and are baptized for the remission of sins. And we receive this gift of the Holy Ghost or from the Holy Ghost, the remission of our sins, the salvation of our soul. It is not the ability to work miracles. Along those lines, verse 39 goes on to say, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as me as the Lord our God shall call. If the promise was you're going to, 
be saved by baptism, and then you'll be able to work miracles. And that means everybody in the first century would have been working miracles. We know that not to be the case. And everybody today that is saved, uh, Jim, would have to be working miracles as well, and that simply is not the case. Well, you know, certainly from all the information we've looked at and and certainly, you know, thinking about uh, any of these individuals who were, were converted, you know, you could go to the, the, the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, and Paul talks about how it is in verse 11. He said, Romans chapter 1, I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. Now, he's talking to saints. And these are individuals who've been converted. So whether we're dealing with the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, whether we're dealing with the individuals in Acts chapter 8, whether we're dealing with any of these people who are converted, uh, we find that it does not deal with the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. That was uh, promised by Jesus, given unto the apostles, and then they, by laying on hands on certain disciples, were able to impart some of those gifts onto them. If you're just joining us on the Internet tonight, uh, we are talking about the book of Acts. We're studying that all week long in our vacation Bible school here at the College U Church of Christ. If you're in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we co- encourage you to come be with us tomorrow night at our last night of these special meetings. But we're talking about the book of Acts and the lessons we learned from that book tonight. And you can participate by dialing 877-381-4567 or emailing questions at collegeview.com. We're also in front of a live audience with some of the attendees of our Vacation Bible School this week. And we're taking questions from them. I believe we have a question from Wade. Uh, Do we? We don't. I thought he had the microphone already and he was dying to ask a question. Here, I'll make up a question. Make one up. Hurry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As we talk about the Holy Spirit... um, you know, I think Greg's point was good um, about Acts 2.38. There's obviously a differentiation between um, the Cornelius event in uh, Acts 10 and Acts 2.38. Uh, we know in 1 Corinthians 3, in verse 16, it says, Do you not know that the, you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, however you take that, whether you take believe that the Spirit is indwelling in you or if, it's, if the Spirit is just with you, um, I don't think it really matters. The The fact is that God had promised the Spirit to all believers in Acts 2.38. That's what they got, and I believe it's revealed here in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16. It shows that the Spirit is with everybody. Now, in 1 Corinthians 12, it goes over a, a list here in verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another through the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, another the faith another gift of healing, effecting of miracles of verse 10, of prophesying. Those are different types of miraculous gifts that the Holy Spirit had bestowed upon us. I don't think that's the same gift as talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. All right. Okay, we're clear. Um, I think we do see this distinction that, that Wade is talking about there. And I think it's an important distinction. I, th- I think it's something that's not understood in the religious world, and people are mistaken about the whole concept of the Holy Spirit um, and, and, his, and his work, his important work in revealing the truth of God and confirming it. And that's one of the things when we talk about the miracles of the first century that we've got to always be reminded of, that the, the Holy Spirit had a purpose in using those gifts, and that was to reveal and confirm God's truth. I think Jim's got a tie-in for us with Acts 2.38. Go ahead, Jim. Well, I was just going to say, you know, uh, we don't want to make the mistake uh, of people thinking that the only... The only way you get the Holy Spirit is miraculously. You know, that there's a promise that is being given here. And I think maybe a clue to it is found in Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 13. 
Here Paul says, In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So we recognize that there that God seals us, and he goes on to talk about it, and this is in the King James Version, in verse 14 of Ephesians 1, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Well, anybody that's bought a home knows what, uh, what, uh, what an earnest money is, that it's a down payment on something that's going to come fuller later on. And it seems what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 1 and tying it in with Acts 2.38 is that there is a promise of the Spirit, and it does not necessarily have to be miraculous because God said we are sealed by it. And that's what I think Paul's talking about in Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14. Okay, thanks. Let's move to a different question. Let's change the pace. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit and miracles here pretty much. Let's change the pace. Uh, our friend Jason up in Pennsylvania has sent an email, and he's asked this question or suggested this is an important truth learned in the book of Acts. Acts 20, verse 7, the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. This is completely changing gears. We're almost, I see, Jake, we're almost up against a break, but let's talk about that real briefly. That, that one we can answer pretty quick, Phil. Phil, you got two minutes. Okay, I have two minutes. Wow, that's a big subject. Um, one of the things that we do learn from Acts chapter 20 is that the disciples would assemble on the first day of the week and one of the purposes for that was to remember the Lord's uh, death and resurrection in partaking of the Lord's Supper. Uh, I don't believe we've read uh, verse 7 of chapter 20, so I'll read it now. It says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Uh, I don't think we have a binding example to uh, you know, preach until midnight on the first day. Otherwise, a lot of people would be going to sleep uh, like Eutychus did. But one thing they did do was partake of the Lord's Supper. They gathered together to break bread. And one of the ways that that expression is used is in reference to the Lord's Supper on the first day. We remember that the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper um, in Matthew chapter 26. On the night in which he was betrayed, he took the unleavened bread and the cup and explained that uh, the bread represented his body that was broken for them and that the cup represented the blood that would be shed for them. And uh, I think it's a pattern that we ought to follow and remembering through the Lord's Supper the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. All right, Jim, I'll ask you this. We have in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, a reference to taking the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. And so we could conclude that it needs to be that, that we should take the Lord's Supper on a Sunday. But uh, you take it on every Sunday. How do you jump from them taking it on a Sunday to taking it on every Sunday? Well, you know, one thing we do in looking at verse 6 is we find out that Paul waited uh, in, in verse 6, it said, They sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. They came then to Troas in five days where they abode seven days. There was a purposeful waiting for the first day of the week to come. And so that suggests unto us that they not only knew it was coming, but that there was a reason why they were waiting around for it. So this wasn't just, you know, they decided, oh, a first day of the week is coming. This will be as good a time as any. We recognize that this was something that they were doing already. And, and there are other verses we could go to, whether we're dealing with 1 Corinthians 16. that talks about when you come together on the first day of the week. That means that they were doing that. It's not just one day they were doing it, but every first day. All right. You, I, the, the good example I think it's always been offered here on this question is since, since it wasn't a specified first day of the week, it wasn't a specified Sunday. In other words, it wasn't the first Sunday of the month. It wasn't the first Sunday after the full moon. It wasn't. It just says it was Sunday. And, and logic would demand that the conclusion, therefore, is that that was a normal Sunday observance. It wasn't a specific Sunday. It was an every kind of Sunday. It's much like the command in the Old Testament, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
How many Sabbaths did they keep holy? Every Sabbath, every time it came around, they understood that that's how you would interpret there was that. No, there was no specific, uh, specific mention of a Sabbath, nor did they say to keep every Sabbath. It was just remember the Sabbath, and they knew that when there was a Sabbath, they needed to remember it. And so we would use the same logic to conclude that we observe the Lord's Supper on Sunday and every Sunday. Now, that's again, that's just really a pretty easy conclusion to draw. Unfortunately, people are divided in the religious world on something as easy as that. We, we, ought, to, we ought to be able to come to agreement on that, I think. All right. We're over time for our break. We'll take this break and listen to this week's bullet point. And we'll look forward to hearing from you on the other side. Don't go anywhere. We'll continue with the virtual Bible study after these important messages. These guys are doing all of the talking. We need to hear from you. Call in now. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's Bullet Point. This week in our Vacation Bible School at the College View Church, we've been studying the book of Acts. There are always some questions as to what happened after Acts ended. The book of Acts actually ends with the Apostle Paul still in custody in Rome. The emperor had not yet heard his case, and Luke did not reveal the outcome of his appeal. There is some indication, however, that he was anticipating his release. He wrote to Philemon and said, quote, Prepare me also a lodging, for I trust through your prayers that I shall be given unto you. Philemon, verse 21. There are three books in the New Testament that give a brief glimpse of the things that the Apostle Paul did after the inspired history of the book of Acts ends. They are 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, it is apparent that he had been released from his Roman confinement. He spoke of being recently in Ephesus on his way to Macedonia. He left Timothy behind in Ephesus to tend to some important matters, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. This scenario does not match any of the travels of Paul that are recorded in the book of Acts. We conclude, therefore, that it must have happened after the end of Acts. In Titus, the apostle mentioned traveling to the Isle of Crete. He left Titus there with specific instructions to, quote, ordain elders in every city, chapter 1, verse 5. At the end of the book, Paul urged Titus to meet him in Nicopolis, where he intended to spend the winter, chapter 3, verse 12. Nicopolis is on the route from Crete to Dalmatia. We know that Titus later went to Dalmatia, 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. It is highly probable that Paul and Titus did meet in Nicopolis before Titus continued his journey to Dalmatia. Again, none of this information matches anything written in Acts. By the time that 2 Timothy, Paul's last epistle, was written, he had been rearrested and had already been through one trial, chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. He mentioned some of his recent travels that apparently had occurred just before his arrest. He had left a cloak and some books at Troas, chapter 4, verse 13. And he had visited Miletus and Corinth, where he left some friends, chapter 4, verse 20. There's also a hint that he had been in Ephesus and that there had been some trouble there, chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. It is clear that he believed his case was soon to end in his execution. He wrote, quote, I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Additionally, it is commonly believed that Paul visited Spain during the brief period of freedom between his two prison confinements. It is certain that he planned to do this before his first arrest, Romans chapter 15, verses 24 and 28. And early tradition holds that he did so. This is what we can deduce about the travels and work of the apostle that happened after the end of the book of Acts. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I am Nestor Sanchez from Arica, Chile, in South America, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. And this moment, I invite you to participate in this program, too. Gracias. Quit checking your email. The commercials are over, and the virtual Bible study is ready to roll. Take it away, guys. And welcome back. We look forward to hearing from you in the remaining half of the program. So we talk about the book of Acts and the important lessons we learned from the book of Acts. If you've got a question about anything in the book of Acts tonight... We have a panel of experts to my left and to my right and to the across the table from me, and we have a room full of people who would like to hear from you at 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com.
Com. You are an expert, aren't you? No, I don't profess that, no. but we'll, well try our okay. best. I think uh, Jim's the expert. Today. Yeah. Oh, we've got a comment from Arthur, I think. We do. In reference to uh, as to how many Sabbaths that they kept uh, back in Leviticus, the 26th chapter in verse 1 and 2 and 3, he says, I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths, plural, and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And if you walk in my stats and keep my commandments to do them. So we can see it's not just the single Sabbath, but it's the plurality of the Sabbaths that they were to keep. All right. And again, that ties in with the observe, our observance of the Lord's Sabbath. We don't keep the Sabbath today. That's old law. But we can see how they interpreted that rule. And that would be the same logic that we would use to interpret how often and on what day we should observe the Lord's Supper. Uh, another uh, question uh, that was emailed in is... Uh, Concerning the organization of the church with elders and deacons. You know, the, the book of Acts actually gives us some information about that. Uh, you guys might jump in on this, but I'm remembering in Acts chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas were concluding their first missionary journey, it says in Acts 14 verse 23, when they had ordained them elders in every church, they prayed with fasting and commended them to the Lord on whom they had believed. And so one of the things we know about the organization of the church is that there were elders in every church. Now, we also have some information in the book of Acts about the limits of their authority. Jim, I see you turning. Give us, give us some insight from Acts on the limits of authority for elders. Well, I was thinking about uh, the situation with Paul in, uh, when he met with the elders from the church at Ephesus. And again, we have that as found in Acts chapter 20. And uh, he gives them, uh, I guess we could say in, in, a, in a common phraseology, marching orders as to what they could do and, and uh, the limits of their authority. In verse 28 of Acts chapter 20, uh, of course, back in verse 17, it tells us that he was at Miletus. He sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church. And then he's talking to him in verse 28. He says, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God with he, which he hath purchased with his own blood. So he's talking about the elders from the church at Ephesus that they are to feed their flock over the which they are, as it says here, overseers or watching over. So that's their limit. The flock that they have in Ephesus, not somebody else's or not bunches of others. They were limited to being overseers watching over that flock in Ephesus. So that's pretty clear. The, the, uh, the organization of the Lord's Church is at a local level. There's no hierarchy of authority for there's no authority for a hierarchy of church government bigger than the local congregation. The local congregation is to be organized with elders. Jim, Wait. that was the oh, that, that was. The, the organization there, but surely there had to be one elder that was more powerful than the others and sort of rose to the surface and began to roll over more than one congregation. Yeah, that was Bob. Bob oh. the elder, yeah. But, uh, there, yeah. Uh, actually, there was, and that was the seed of Roman Catholicism, yeah. but it's not biblical. Right, right. And, you know, it, it's interesting also to notice in Acts chapter 20, you know, he, he limits that oversight, and he's just talking to them about their work with a flock of God at Ephesus. So there's no quote-unquote sponsoring church, sponsoring eldership over bunches of other mother words. church. Right, there's system. none of that that yeah. we find taking place in the book of Acts. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that we just recently uh, observed the Southern Baptist electing another president over their organization, whatever that may be. That must have been one of the chapters left out of the book of uh, Acts. I, know, I don't read it about it in my book. Yeah. All right, uh, Wade, we've got, you've got a question? I do have a question, Jacob. Um, 
And this is in reference, um, let's go back to Acts chapter 15. Um, this is part of what Jim was preaching on tonight. I don't think he really touched this, but it is, it's in the same uh, category that we're talking about now. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 22, it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from whom them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Bersabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who, who are from the Gentiles' greetings. Now, he goes through this whole list down here, and he tells them uh, what they shouldn't be doing. Now, this is my question. Um, I kind of have my own answer to it, but I just kind of want to see what, what your answer is. I understand why the apostles are writing to these brethren in uh, Antioch and, and Syria and Cilicia. But why are the elders from the church at Jerusalem writing to these brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia and telling them what they should be doing if they have no authority over them to be doing it? Well, there are some people who left them, Wade, and had gone out teaching these erroneous doctrines, and uh, they needed to set the record straight, Jim. Uh, they didn't want to uh, leave the impression with some people who may have been taught uh, from the people that they were sponsoring to go teach uh, to, that uh, these things were what God required of them. Right. Verse uh, 24 says, uh, For as much as we have heard, certain which went out from us have troubled you with words subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. You know, I think one, one simple answer is, is to realize that uh, apostles were not going to continue, but elders would, and that there is a, a responsibility that they have as overseeing the flock and taking care of the flock. Again, we can tie this in with what we were looking at in Acts chapter 20, when Paul says that they were to watch over the flock and feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. And he goes on to say in, in verses 29 and 30, he said, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. So these elders have a responsibility to watch over, protect, and feed the flock. And I think the simple answer then in Acts chapter 19 is the reason that they're included in this is that uh, they have as much authority in dealing with the, the church at Jerusalem and in letting others know that these men who went out were not authorized to go out, and this is a form of discipline that is being mentioned. You know, and by the way, it, it, it says there that this letter, verse 23 of Acts 15, they wrote letters by them in this manner, the apostles and elders and brethren send greetings. And so the brethren there are mentioned in the same phrase as the elders. It's not saying that the elders had authority beyond Jerusalem. It's just saying that the elders and the brethren at Jerusalem were in agreement with what was being stated and clearing up the trouble that had originated by some false teachers who came out of so Jerusalem. So all of the members there in Jerusalem right. want to make sure that the record was straight. Exactly right. Well, I would like to back up for just a minute and point out that having elders is very important. Uh, sometimes we overlook that, and if you've been a part of a group that doesn't have elders, you see sometimes the issues that come up. Uh, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul writes to Titus and tells him that one of, one of the reasons he left him was so that Titus would put in order the things that were lacking. And among those things that were lacking was the ordaining or the appointing of elders in these different cities. Uh, Paul was saying that these churches were not complete. There was something lacking. Now, if a church doesn't have men that meet the attributes, the qualifications, you obviously can't make them elders. But I think it's important to those of us 
and I'm younger than all of you. Uh, I think it's thanks for reminding yeah, us of that. Phil. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> I think those of us who are who are younger, particularly younger than middle age, need to realize that it's important to have elders, and it's we need to. Uh, take the initiative now to grow into that role. It won't just happen overnight. You know, I think I think you're exactly right, Phil. It's important. It should be a priority for churches to develop men who can serve as elders. And we should. It, it, there's something lacking, as you said. The, the, it was a, it, something was lacking in those churches that didn't have elders. And, and so a church is not all God wants it to be. But I think it's also important to point out they were churches. Even Absolutely. though they didn't have elders, they needed to. They needed to mature and grow to where they could have elders. But they were churches. Before exactly. they had elders. Yeah, you, you can still be a very faithful congregation right. without elders, but God's plan to be a complete church is to exactly. have that leadership. But so right. your point is very valid because I've heard, and you, you've likely heard it as well, people who in churches that don't have elders, there are comments that, do we really need elders? You know, and what's the benefit of having elders? Yeah. And I'm sure you've heard that. Uh, We're getting along fine without them. Why should we even bother? Because God because wants God you to so. yeah. yeah, exactly right. All right. Arthur? Uh, yes, in reference to... Uh, uh, elders and uh, their jurisdiction, uh, we can look in uh, First uh, Peter verse five and uh, begin with verse one. And the elders which are among, among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also the taker of, of the glory that shall be revealed. He tells those elders. He said, "Feed the flock of God which is among you." Taking the oversight thereof, not because of strength, but willing, willing not filthy lugar of ready mind. So we can see very well, he said, feed the flock of God which is among you. All right, exactly right. All right, we're going to take a last break. And when we come back, we'd like to hear from you, and we'd like to hear from our audience here in the room with us tonight. We're going to drag some questions out of the back of the room on the other side of this break. Don't go anywhere. The virtual bout, you can't leave. We're going to get a question out of you. Okay, here he comes. All right, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. Don't go anywhere. The virtual bout study continues right after this. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. Hello. Hey, Matt. No, I don't have any plans for Friday night. What are you doing? Oh, I won't be able to go with you to watch that movie. Because, Matt, the movie is rated R. Hey, why don't you just come over and hang out at my house Friday night? Great. I'll see you there. Being pleasing to God means that you may have to be different than the crowd. But don't be afraid to stand up for what's right. It just might find it is easier than what you expect. A message brought to you by College U Church of Christ. My name is Roger Toombs, and me and my wife love to listen to the virtual Bible study on Thursday nights. Share your comment with the world. Call in now and be a part of the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. And welcome back to the program tonight. We have Jack Coleman in our audience tonight, and he has a comment to make. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Yes, uh, I, I thought it interesting that I have some close friends that oftentimes refer to the uh, pastor or the or as the senior senior uh, um, person in the congregation that more or less guides or uh, directs the flock. It's interesting in that uh, Paul, and we've already cited where he refers to the elders in Acts, but he, he writes a letter to the Philippians when he was in house and rest in Rome, and he, had, he mentions there that he cites to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. So he lays out the... Uh, the offices or the positions right there and in other places he mentions the elders, deacons, and the saints. 
But it's interesting that uh, he uses overseers here in the New American Standard Version. And uh, you can look over in 1 Peter 5, I believe, in verse 1, and other places that show that there are several words that denote uh, the elder, such as presbyter, overseer, shepherd, bishop, pastor. And these all, all five refer to the same office. And it's very specific uh, that he gives qualifications for those in, in Titus and, um, and in Timothy. And it's talking about specifically this office. And I don't see anywhere where there's indication of a senior elder or a senior pastor. You mean, it all. you mean you don't read about Bob the Elder? That no, sir. Okay. no, sir. Those are my comments. <laughs> Thank you, but, Jack. It's really disturbing. Uh, I'm aware of a congregation uh, that they wear the name Church of Christ, and they're a group that I wouldn't agree with much of what they do, uh, but they have a board of elders, and they, have a, they elect a chairman of the board each year. Uh, I don't know how they select, but it, it just... It's like, okay, we've got Catholicism that, evolving all that, over that, that's again. That's a departure right there. Just, in other words, someone said that seems like a pretty innocent thing to have a chairman of the Board of Elders, but that's a departure. There's no authority for one man to have any uh, additional authority in that arrangement. That's just a departure. And once going, you make one departure, you can't stop that train. That's exactly right. All right, we'll go back into the audience tonight, and uh, Mike has a comment to make. Okay, my comment was backing up just a little bit. We talked about Acts 27, about the breaking of the bread. Also, when Paul was teaching in Corinthians, again, on the first day of the week, he's concerning the collection. He made this statement that when they come together on the first day, and the New American Standards uses first day of every week in that connection in 1 Corinthians. You know, I've always thought it's kind of interesting, Mike, that most... Most religious groups have no problem understanding that they should take up a collection every Sunday. But they, somehow or another, they can't make the same conclusion about observing the Lord's Supper every Sunday. But, it, it, I mean, if, if one is true, then the other is true, too. If, if we should take up a collection every Sunday from 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, then we should observe the Lord's Supper every Sunday from uh, Acts 20, verse 7. I think that's the uh, consistency would demand that conclusion. Time to take your questions. Questions at collegeu.com or 877-381-45. Six, seven. Let me let me go to another question from our email. Something that we learned from the book of Acts, important doctrinal information from the book of Acts, plan of salvation. Oh, man, that is that is absolutely true. Right. We could spend the rest of the night. I mean, not just the rest of our program, but the rest of the night, literally talking about information from the book of Acts concerning the plan of salvation. And also there was one down here uh, in, in regards to that another email says baptism is necessary for salvation what about that phil well we referenced acts chapter 2 and verse 38 earlier um, where peter told the crowd that in order to solve this issue because they had asked the question men and brethren what shall we do and his solution to that was repent and be baptized and uh, he made the connection with the forgiveness of sins Um, if we turn to acts chapter 22 we have paul's retelling of his conversion story and in chapter 22 and verse 16, uh, Ananias is speaking to Saul of Tarsus at this point, who later becomes Paul, and he says, And now why do you wait? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name, or calling on the name of the Lord. So Ananias makes this very strong connection between baptism, washing away sins, and calling on the name of the Lord. They all happen at the same time. Calling on the name of the Lord, I, I, I view baptism as calling on the name of the Lord. I think you're exactly right. And at right. that point, the sins are washed away. Exactly right. Jim? 
Well, you know, I was the, the thought I had dealt with uh, Acts chapter 19 and Paul meeting those uh, individuals in Ephesus. And he asked them in uh, verse 3, uh, what were they baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John barely baptized with baptism or repentance. This is uh, Acts 19, verse 4, saying unto the people, they should believe on him that should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they had not been baptized properly. And so Paul said, well, here is what the truth is. And as soon as they learn the truth, they are baptized. I want to come back to that in a minute. But just on the on the question of the plan of salvation and is baptism essential in God's plan of salvation for our souls, you know, the book of Acts could be referred to as the book of conversions. And it's not just a few people. It's not just a handful of people. It's not a couple dozen people. The book of Acts, if you think about it, literally describes the conversion of thousands of people. And there is not one of them that was saved without being baptized. Every case of conversion in the book of Acts involves people being baptized. And so is baptism essential for the remission of sins? Is it a necessary part of the plan of salvation? And I think absolutely yes. All right. And Phil, uh, we talk about uh, baptism. What about faith, though? Is faith important, and does the book of Acts tell us that? Oh, well, absolutely. And we don't want our listeners to come away thinking that all you have to do is go get dunked. Or if that was the case, we could just haul people off the streets and dunk them in water. That's not the underlying issue. You have to have faith to begin with. Uh, a faith that God accepts is a faith that will lead you to be baptized, and at that point you will have your sins washed away. When you look at the cases of conversion in Acts, every person who is listed as having obeyed the gospel had to first believe it. Uh, the case of the Philippian jailer in uh, Acts chapter 16, obviously someone who was told, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. He did, he was baptized, he was saved. Uh, so we don't want our listeners to come away from this thinking that uh, that baptism is all it is. And sometimes we're accused of that. Maybe we don't communicate well, but there's but much know, more to it. But uh, that Acts 16, same hour of the night, how how important was baptism? Important enough for the for the jailer to take the risk of getting Saul and, and uh, Paul and Silas out of prison and being baptized in sometime after midnight that night. And why couldn't it wait till it the next three morning? It wasn't three weeks. It why wasn't could, two months. It yeah. wasn't the next morning. It was same, the same hour. Same hour of the night. That, I think, really stresses the importance of baptism. And I think there are a lot of people who are disingenuous with Acts 16.31 because it says, They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And people stop right there, and they say, All he needed to do was believe. But the very next verse tells us they tell him what it is he needs to know about in order to believe. Because it says they spake unto him the word of the Lord. Very much like what Peter did on the day of Pentecost in preaching about Jesus and who he was and how we come in contact with his blood. So they said, here's what you need to do. Here's how you do it. And the end result of that is the doing of it in, in being baptized. Well, we have demons in the New Testament who believed on the Lord and they even confessed him. But uh, they weren't saved. That's right. That's right. All right. We have another comment in the audience. Uh, Yes. In reference to the need for water baptism, we uh, spoke about Cornelius a little earlier. And when uh, the the, uh, Gentiles here had received the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he said that they'd seen them there that spoke with tongues and magnified uh, the Lord God. And then Peter says, can any man forbid water that he should not be baptized that have received the Holy Spirit as well as we? And they command him to be baptized in the name of the Lord. They pray that they tarry a certain day. So we can even see that this 
Holy Spirit baptism was not for the remission of sin, was not in water, and it would took water baptism in order for them to uh, be pleasing to God. Exactly right. Let's go back to something that Jim said from Acts 19 about some people who were baptized. They were actually rebaptized. I get this question every once in a while. Would it ever be necessary or would it ever be appropriate for someone to be baptized again? Well, I think Acts 19 that, that Jim referenced it would answer that question. Here were some fellows who'd been baptized, but they didn't have a proper understanding when they did it. In other words, the physical act that they engaged in was identical but the only difference was the, the first time they were baptized, they didn't understand about the truth of Jesus the second time they did. And so my answer to the question of being baptized again is, well, if you didn't understand what you were doing the first time, you should be baptized again. Because Romans chapter 6, verse 17 says our obedience must be from the heart. You can't obey from the heart that which you do not understand. Okay, well, how do you answer people then that say, well, you're just trying to be, you're just trying to be legalistic. You're trying mm-hmm. to say we have to do things perfectly. But isn't that, in effect, what Acts 19 is saying is that God says there's a specific way to do something. Any other way is not acceptable. As a baby, I was baptized. I don't remember it. I was told, you know, but I don't remember it. And so when I learned the gospel, I was baptized according to the gospel way. Exactly right. When you understood what you were doing. Exactly. Okay, real quick. We're almost out of time. Let's take that question you just suggested, Jim. Is baptism sprinkling immersion? You were sprinkled as a baby. You were immersed later. Which is the proper mode? We're not talking about understandings here, but what is the proper mode of baptism? Could a person be sprinkled or must they be immersed? Well, we find from Acts. From Acts, we can look at Acts chapter 8 where uh, we're dealing with the Ethiopian treasure, the Ethiopian eunuch, and Philip asks him in verse 37. Actually, verse 36, he asked, What doth hinder me to be baptized? Verse 37, Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Let me tell you something real quick. When I was in college, uh, I was studying uh, about some Greek history, and they talked talked about the Peloponnesian War, and they talked about these ships sinking, going down to the bottom. It said the ships baptizo. They, they went they, down they to the submerged. bottom. They were completely submerged. Yeah. Uh, we, got, we got Arthur here suggesting from uh, John chapter 3, verse 23, John was baptizing in Enon near to Salem because there was much water there. Baptism requires much water. But I think in Acts, if we're trying to concentrate our answers from Acts, that, that case that you cited, Jim, the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch proves that you've got to go. You, if, if, they, if it was sprinkling, if, if he sprinkled the eunuch, neither one of them had to get in the water. That's right. But That's both right. of them got in the water because, and I've often said, if there was no other information in the Bible than Acts 8 and the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch, that would be enough to prove that baptism is immersion. There's plenty of other information, but that certainly proves the All case. All right. We're just about out of time. One more thing that we learned from the book of Acts, and that's in the last verse of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 28. Verse 31, Paul's under house arrest, and from this passage in Acts 28, verse 31, we understand the importance of the gospel. Under house arrest, Paul, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. We learn from the book of Acts the importance of the gospel of Christ. We need to be studying it on a regular basis, and we need to be proclaiming it to others. Exactly right. And, of course, we hope that all who are listening tonight will make a regular Thursday night appointment as we join together on the Internet to study the Word of God. All right. Thank you, Jim, for your participation in our Vacation Bible School tonight and following it up with the Virtual Bible Study tonight. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And, Phil, thank you for your time tonight and for your time 
uh, on a regular basis, getting us out on the Internet. We appreciate all your work with that. Well, thank you, and thank you for the plug. I appreciate right. it. Thank you, uh, Dad, for your time tonight. Well, we enjoyed it. Time went re- went real quick. We didn't even touch uh, many of the topics that, that the Book of Acts contains, doctrinal information, so critical. And, again, we conclude our Vacation Bible School here tomorrow night. If you're in the Middle Tennessee area listening, we'd love for you to come tomorrow night for the wrap-up of our Vacation Bible School. We've been studying the Book of Acts all week. And we've got a room full of people here tonight who have stayed late to uh, – to listen to our program tonight. Thank you for being here. And if you've got any questions about us, if you want directions to our meeting place, so you can come tomorrow night, you can visit our website, uh, thevirtualbiblestudy.com or collegeview.com. We look forward to meeting you if you're in the Columbia, Tennessee area. Thank you for listening to the program tonight. We hope you'll make plans to be back here next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And in the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study his inspired word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.